From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. Julie Blacklow worked as a reporter for King 5 and Cairo 7 here in Seattle. And uh, full disclosure, you and I were in the same building together at one point, right? Yes. And now you've decided, for some weird reason, to write your autobiography. And and you've been way too frank. I mean, usually I, I, I'm used to, you know, national celebrities laying it all out because, you know, they're insulated by phalanxes of uh, PR people. But here you are pretty much out on your own. Uh, talking about your hysterectomy, uh, being seduced by a man you were doing a story on. Um, this is pretty wild stuff in here. So let's let's begin at the end. At the age of 60, which I now come to realize is really young. Yes. <laughs> you decided just to, to ditch journalism and start taking care of horses. <laughs> Why? Yes. Great question. It came to me. I wasn't looking to do that, even though I'd loved horses since I was a baby. But television news was done with me. And I went out to visit Pepper Schwartz's horse ranch in Snoqualmie. Mm-hmm. We were old friends. Pepper Schwartz, the famous therapist. The famous therapist. Who I've talked and, to many times. Yes. And on that day, after September 11th, when we're all in a state of uh, shock, she brought a foal to me, and it. I bought that horse that day. And when I bought this little six-month-old baby, I had a sense that my life was changing and that it had come to me for a reason. And so within a year, I'm raising a horse and ended up managing Pepper's Horse Ranch um, because she got divorced. I know. Life is uh, serendipitous and You describe this in the book as almost metaphysical, like there was a message coming to you from the cosmos, which just strikes me unusual for a a hard-bitten reporter who uh, describes herself as, let's see, a badass. Yes. And, uh, you know, titled her book Fearless. Yes. So uh, is that something that did did that surprise you, or are you always— in touch with the forces of the universe. Well, I respect them. Yeah. And I felt that I was being led into a place I needed to be, to come from a very chaotic, confusing, sometimes dangerous, and always challenging world into nature. I was thrust into a completely different realm. And so for me, I think it's what I needed. And even though I didn't consciously know I needed it, I was brought to it. So it's like therapy. And you also talk about this strange affinity between women and horses, which I can I can see because my, my youngest sister, mm-hmm. from the very beginning, I don't know where it came from. We didn't have horses in our backyard, but she always wanted to, to have horses. And she ended up, you know, with her husband buying a, a, a farm in upstate New York and, you know, raising horses. I think she finally decided to retire from that. But does the horse talk to you? Yes, the horse talks to The you. horses talk to all the women, and very few men, even though they love, we have very few men at the ranch who own horses. It's mostly a woman's thing. And, and what very, do they say? Well, it's a language without words. Horses give women, as I've observed it for almost 20 years now, a sense of happiness that they are not getting in other aspects of their lives, with husbands, children's children, partners, all the jobs are asking of women to give and to nurture others. The horse 
is asking nothing and gives an almost metaphysical kind of happiness and calm to women. And they are able to absorb our feelings and nurture us in another language, in another way of communicating. Most of us women who come to horses later in life had horses in their lives as children. Mm -hmm. And so it's triggering an old memory and feeling. Well, in your case, it was, what, it was a pony ride or something. Yes, I was 18 Maybe. months old. Uh, there's a picture of that in the book. And I knew when I looked back at the picture that something was happening there that stayed with me all of my life and is still very much present today. It's a scent. It's a feeling. It's a connection that women have with horses. And it's difficult to explain, but it's very, very powerful. So you spent a career pushing the boundaries, and uh, and and in the beginning, being one of the few women in uh, in broadcasting, well, you know, anywhere, including in this. Although, although I say I was sort of ahead of the pack, I think, in terms of getting women on the air, right? Uh, very much so, but it yeah. was still slow here. So in 1972, when I got my job at King TV, there were two other women in a room of over a hundred men, and it took some time to increase the number of women there. So, yes, King was very much at the forefront of that change, but it was slow. Yeah. I was also in a newsroom full of men, and uh, <laughs> a lot of them smoked, which I couldn't stand. Yes, they did. Yes. Um, but that's changed now. So give me your observations on, on uh, where it stands today. An interesting question. I Obviously, the increased number of women in broadcast news and in print news as well, and, and on air, um, in radio, television, newspapers, online, podcasts, women are at the table. So it's better. But I still hear from women around the country that there's still some prejudice against our being in those uh, arenas with them. Really? I don't. Yes, absolutely. Even Based here on... in, in Seattle, in com direct conversations with my friends. Nobody means the, the prejudice. What, what in is terms what of are the story coverage? About? In oh, terms of story coverage, in terms of management capabilities and opportunities. So you think there's still assignment editors who send women out on women's stories and men on men's stories? I don't know what a man's story is, oh. but uh, I think that's less true today than it was a long time ago. But there's still a feeling that you have to fight to get the most important stories. What concerns me more is what isn't being covered by anybody. Like what? Politics. Politics is po not being Locally. Oh, local locally. Politics. I'm talking well. about in local newsrooms around the country, yeah. there's been a fissure in terms of what's not being reported on a daily basis in local communities because around the country. Because of the collapse of news staff. Absolutely. The collapse of news staffs and the fact that every station in the United States, every television station, I don't know the data for radio, are owned by six companies, own every television station in the United States. That is not a good thing. It controls the message and provides less opportunity for differences of opinion. But school boards aren't covered anymore. Local state legislatures aren't covered but anymore. But that's shifted to blogs. That's shifted to these these small online, like, you know, West Seattle blog, for example. If yes. you want news from West Seattle, you yeah. go to that, and it covers it like a blanket. Where's There's, Olympia? 
Well, Where's the state government coverage? Yeah, there are a few individuals. I'm thinking of Erica Barnett, who has long covered local politics and has had a variety of uh, blogs. There's Seattle City Council Insights. There's a small blog that uh, where this guy just sits in every meeting, you know, and he covers it. And there's but, Crosscut. And there's, and there's Crosscut, uh, right. David Brewster's new uh, postalley.org. Yeah. But it's true. You're not, you're not going to see it on mainstream TV stations no. because it's just not it's that interesting to, to people. Find. Yeah. It's harder to find. It's not that it's not there, but it's more difficult to find those t- stories. And those are the connected, that's the connective tissue to where you live on the ground. All politics is local. Was that uh, one of our state congressmen mm-hmm. said that? Tom Foley. Yeah. All politics is local. I remember back in the 60s, Everett Dirksen saying, those things. All politics is local. There is a disconnect. And so it concerns me less that the gender that's being given the opportunity to cover a story, but the fact that it's not being covered that much on radio or television, which is still. Yeah. uh, Well, we used to be able to force feed some of this news on people because we were the only source, right? When you had the three networks and there was no internet, um, the TV and radio stations were were sort of... um, they're like the New York Times. I, I remember when I first worked here, we considered Cairo Radio the station of record, and we would, by golly, cover every city council meeting, and we'd interview every politician. Uh, today, you have to—it's true—you have to you seek that out. You have to seek that out, and voters are probably spending less time learning about candidates now than they were for, than we forced them to spend back then when we um, put it into every news. Well, isn't that the function of the free press? I mean, it is our responsibility. Uh, to, if not force feed, at least provide. Right. The uh, well, it was the function when we were minting money, when because you had a monopoly on the airwaves. Yeah, the money was there because there's nothing else to listen to. Okay. Now, now you got to get eyeballs and uh, ears, uh, and you have to make money. Right. Well, uh, I re- yes, point taken, but I don't think that diminishes our responsibility to do that work. Uh, There's a a quote in my book from Justice William O. Douglas of Washington State uh, who said, and I'm quoting him loosely, the most important role in our society is that of a free press. He talks about the First Amendment. It is the most singularly important thing in our democracy. Yeah. You got to know who you're voting for. Yes. Well, it concerns me. It concerns me. Gender aside, who's doing the work, that the work itself is not always being done enough. A lot of your book almost reads like Forrest Gump. You seem to show up (laughs) next to famous people and uh, and important uh, Mm -hmm. events, including, let me see if I can remember, Richard Nixon. You ran into him. Um, You interviewed uh, John Ehrlichman, who was part of uh, one of Nixon's, quote, henchmen, but comes off as a very nice guy in your book. He was. Let's see, Tina Turner. You walked out on Jennifer Lopez, didn't you? I did indeed. Tell me about Uh, that. Well, I was was working, while I was working for Cairo uh, Television News, I was also uh, freelancing for Entertainment Tonight. That was a fun job. They would sign me to cover... Films that were being shot in the Northwest, meet movie stars, and, and uh, very lighthearted stuff. So we were assigned to cover a story with her. She, her movie, Enough, was shooting in Seattle. And so we were sent to down the waterfront. I can't remember exactly where it was. It may have been Bainbridge Island. I can't remember exactly. 
but my crew and I set up our gear to do a one-on-one interview with Jennifer Lopez. We waited three hours with lights set, cameras mm-hmm. ready, waiting. And I'm used to that. You know, making movies... Well, three hours is unreasonable. Is unreasonable, but, you know, making movies, as I said in my book, is like watching paint dry. It's pretty boring. Uh, so we knew that we were going to have to wait. At the end of three hours, she walks over, escorted by her uh, corporation of uh, handlers, and she's sullen and moody and uh, very glum. Now, Entertainment Tonight, there is no nicer, less hostile yeah. media anywhere. It's, it's, it's the, so she sits down. She she kind of drops in her chair. Like, I don't want to be here. Can we get this over with? That's the mood she's exuding. So I introduce myself. We shake hands. She's like, can we get this over with? Uh, so I turned around to my crew and I said, pack it up. We're leaving. Uh, <laughs> This is ridiculous. We're not here to do an investigative story. We're not putting anyone in the hot seat. We have no agenda other than to publicize you and your movie. Is that what you told her? Yeah. And what did she say? Well, she was startled, and she didn't change her mood. And I turned around to my crew, and I just said to Kevin, uh, pack up the gear. We're leaving. And normally, I'd never done that ever for entertainment tonight. I had known these producers down in Los Angeles and done many, many stories for them. So I left without their permission. And we we walked out. Um, In hindsight, it was uh, me having an ego trip and being sullen myself. But, excuse me, the entertainment tonight producers completely supported me. Did they really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You didn't I, think that she that once the camera was on, she'd put on her game face and give you a good interview? No. Well, her game face was actually quite gloomy because she was shooting a movie about an abused wife. Mm-hmm. So she had on a wig that was not at all attractive, and she did she wasn't in full makeup. She's still beautiful, yeah. no matter what she's wearing or what wig is on. But she uh, was not her most glamorous self. I didn't care. But no, she didn't change, and we left. I mean, it was what uh, chutzpah yes. to do it. That but was pretty good. That was. I just thought, let's just be nice to each other. You know, we're not here to harm you. Unlike my uh, some of my past encounters with politicians or people who didn't want me there, or police officers who didn't want to see me coming, uh, this was completely benign. We left. On the other hand, you were completely blown away by Oprah Winfrey. Oh yes. Well, so, she was not. She was. She was happy to see us, and. Uh, but more than that, you. She exudes something. Yes, she is what did. you're telling me. As the, did the Dalai Lama. Though there's two people in my life who Oprah I've, and the Dalai Lama are in the same category for you. Absolutely. They well, in the sense that they, there's a, a palpable, tangible aura, that comes to you and embraces you before you make physical uh-huh. contact. It pours out of them. I talked to her when she was on the original tour to promote her the new show that she was just starting. Mm -hmm. And she was impressive. I mean, she obviously knew what she was doing. Mm -hmm. But I I cannot say I felt a mysterious force in the room. I did. No, Uh, not mysterious. Just kindness. Yeah. It wasn't complicated at all. It was just goodness and happiness. And I felt it. And she was embracing and she was outgoing and she extended her arms to us. And so I felt uh, a kindness 
coming out of her. And that was a similar kindness I felt coming from the Dalai Lama. And I was there at a horde of people with the Dalai Lama, so it was just one of many. But I did have a moment, a brief moment with him. With, with Oprah, she was glorious. She was, and it was helped by the hundreds of women surrounding her who were just thrilled to be in her presence. And I was too. You know, I'm again, I'm not there to do an investigative piece. I'm not a, I'm not a, a hardcore yeah, yeah. journalist at that point. And these women were not just dazzled by her fame. This was something beyond I think that. it's beyond that. Yeah. She is famous and important. She is famous with some gravitas behind her. She has helped people. She is intelligent. She's educated. She is a mogul. She is successful. But she is there to help people. That's her motivation. And so that's why they're excited to be here. Yes, she's famous, probably one of the most famous women in the world still to this day. But she was kind and she was giving and she was happy to uh, be surrounded by the love of other people. So if she were to jump into the presidential race now, she'd take it away in a landslide. I think, uh, I don't know about that. I certainly see where Michael Moore wants Michelle Obama to run (laughs) and feels that she could take it away in a walk. Um, I, I don't see Oprah in politics. I think she has more power, perhaps, where she currently is. But she's powerful behind the scenes, uh, in terms of political support. Um, I wish Michelle would think about it, though. Huh. On the other hand, there's also Chuck Berry. So <laughs> go ahead and just tell me the the unexpurgated version of that story, and if we need to, we'll just censor it later. Oh, well, okay. I'll try to. I'll try to be delicate. Unlike he he was, um, I went to cover a rock and roll reunion show at the Tacoma Dome. Chuck Berry was the headliner with some glorious '60s rock and roll stars, and we uh, I had a huge crew of five camera people, uh, technicians, audio people. So we went into a back room to figure out how we were going to cover this uh, uh, with eighteen thousand people pouring into the Tacoma Dome. So we're in a back room, and Chuck Berry saw us, and tore into the room, furious that we were there. I guess the promoter had not told him that we were there with permission to shoot this show and create a little mini documentary. So he had just come off a tour from Europe where a lot of his concerts were taped illegally and sold without permission, and he got no uh, money at all from those sales. He's furious. So he comes in with an attitude and he walks over to my crew and to me. We're gathered around a big oblong table. And he said, uh, you know, who the hell are you? And what are you all doing here? And if I see any of you out there when I'm on stage, I'm leaving. So this was problematical. Uh, I'm, I have a million dollars worth of uh, television equipment with me and crew And so I tried to placate him. I tried to humor him, all of which failed. Every effort I made, oh, I love you. You're fantastic. You're rock and roll, king of rock and roll. He wasn't having any of it. But I was begging, and he must have been amused at some point because my crew would later tell me they saw him crack a smile uh, watching my antics. Mm -hmm. So once he began to soften, he walked over to me in front of 15 people reached into the pocket of his uh, corduroy red suit and pulled out a wad of $100 bills, a big wad of money. And he starts peeling off 
one after the other, has a, an enormous amount of cash in his hands, leans over, offers it, offers it to me, and says, and I'll try to be delicate here, um, hey, Mama, uh, these are yours if you'll give me a little oral sex before I go on stage. Well, I'm glad to use the clinical term. I've tried to because I don't know, you know, how, how you might accept the actual term, but he said the actual term. And so I thought about this. It, it was, I had never encountered an offer like this before, nor had I ever accepted anything from anybody, even a cup of coffee in my entire television news career. But I thought, well, this is Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. It's something to think about. And I, 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 really? there's been, there's been $5,000 there. So I thought, well, that's tax free income. And, um, was this going to be uh, on camera or uh, off what, camera? Uh, this was going to be off camera. I see. This was not going to be taped by my crew. Okay. And so, and they witnessed it. And they witnessed this. They're, they're standing around. I have witnesses to this day who remember it. And of course, it's a story that was told at many parties. So I declined his offer. I thanked him for the offer. I was flattered. It was Chuck Very Berry. Thing to do. I mean, he's Ch- Chuck Berry, yeah. you know, the king of rock and roll. And he uh, left and he said, well, then you can't shoot my part of the show. So I felt a little bad about that. But my one of my camera people was clever and disappeared back into the crowd during mm-hmm. the show. And uh, the other the other crew, we just turned off our cameras and didn't shoot anymore. And one of them got about a minute's worth of Johnny Be Good, mm-hmm. which sounded terrible. I mean, the great irony was that he was off key and he was frustrated with his band. And uh, we ended up having to probably overdub, uh, not what he performed that night, but what we found in the archives. So it's a crazy story. It's true. I never had an offer quite like that before or after. Thank goodness. You did write, however, that you allowed yourself to be seduced by somebody you were covering. And this was uh, in the course of the Roger Forbes case. He was the, the local porn king for a while. Is, is he still around? He's he's around. He's not here in the Seattle area. I'm sure he has a condo somewhere in town, but he lives in Hawaii. He is a national. He still has businesses nationwide. So yeah. I did talk to him uh, briefly um, about a year ago. I finally reached him. He didn't want any part of being involved or let me interview him about the controversy surrounding him. Uh, back in the 80s, but he did give me a cryptic comment about uh, Count Me Out, and I asked him if he remembered the porno films that were shown in Renton when he kicked up a fuss there, and he said, no, um, of course I I don't remember them. It's it's, uh, bad enough to show them, but I could never watch them. So I thought, thought, (laughs) okay, whatever. But yes, I did, I did, and I talked, you know, you've read the book, and so you know I hold nothing back in this book. It's pretty much out there. It's out there, and I wanted it to be that way. So his lawyer was Robert Eugene Smith. Yes, he was indeed, and he was uh, devastatingly handsome. And I, he started sending me flowers. He was the lawyer for the trial. I crossed uh, every journalistic boundary that you could imagine. Um, whether it's good enough to say I never actually had a sexual relationship with him, still belies the bad judgment that I had. And he was seductive, and I was seduced. 
and I was covering that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, all wrong. All wrong. And you never told your employer? No, but it was pretty obvious because he was sending me a dozen roses every day to the King Newsroom. The I mean, it was pretty obvious wow. that that he was coming after me. Uh, it didn't change, and this is no excuse, it did not change how I covered that story. Is that why he was doing it, in hopes that it would? I don't think so, no. No, no I don't. Just a genuine attraction. Just a genuine attraction. He was not married. My marriage was failing. He, um, We were attracted to each other, and it was wrong to allow that to happen. However, it afforded me an opportunity to be shown the porn industry in California because Robert Smith represented every porn producer in Silicon, in Silicon, not so San, San Fernando Valley, San Fernando <laughs> Valley. He took me on uh, some incredible adventures. Like uh, what? To well into the porn houses where so they were reproducing, reproducing uh, thousands of videotapes. That's how it was done. He take you know, to the studios. He took me to the studios. He Jeez. took me to the reproducing. Uh, to the parties. Part, yes, I did go actually to a sailing party and the Channel Islands. Uh, where one of the country's biggest porn producers owned a huge yacht. I've I've never seen anything quite like that. And on board were all the porn stars. <laughs> so here I am, a reporter from Seattle, meeting a lot of the stars of these films, a couple of whom I recognized. <laughs> uh, you know, all truth. There's I'm not hiding anything. Uh, but they were... Very low key, and they were very, very uh, nice and normal people. Normal people, just, just folks. Normal who, people, people. Normal people starring in these movies, and I'm sure very many millions of normal people watching them. So I got uh, some insight into the industry. It was fun. It was a little bit dangerous, and it was uh, interesting. <laughs> hmm. Did you feel you had to just? Take a shower after these trips? Or? Not at all. No? <laughs> not at all. But I did take a shower in Robert's mansion in Encino. <laughs> did you? Which are, not with him, quite alone. I see. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, there was nothing. It, it's really quite a conundrum. It's considered by some, you know, did you, you, you ask the question, did you need to take a shower? Why would you ask that question? Because you have an idea that there's something dirty about it. These were very, very educated polished, high-class people. It was a revelation. I had the same biases, yeah. but it was not that way. And so as a journalist, um, it was I learned something. You referenced, you know, the Forrest Gump, you know, yeah. some of the other people I met. And uh, yes, it's been a journey from the, the very dark side to the very light side of life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when your son announced that he was gay, uh, I think I think it's easier today. What what, what year was that? He nineteen ninety ninety eight. He had just gone off to Columbia University in New York, so he mm-hmm. leaves with a secret that I don't know about. Yeah. Um, so he knew he was gay when he was sixteen. So we were together, still living together for two years before he went off to school and didn't tell his family until he came back Christmas vacation. From Columbia. So, yes. It was, and you had to, I think as you put it, re-edit your, uh, the, the film in your head about your life's trajectory. That's right. Yeah. And don't we do that as parents? And, yeah. you know, we say, well, this is how we think our child's life is going to go a certain way. And then 
myriad circumstances can change that uh, perception. And the movie in your head that's going, this is the edit. It's going to, they're going to go to college. They're going to get married. They're going to get a job. They're going to have children. All the things that the presumptiveness of life that we all share because it's a common uh, reality for most of us. And then life has a way of interrupting your movie. And that's what happened to me uh, and to millions of other parents for different reasons. But when I learned Jeremy was gay, I was shocked by that um, because I didn't know. And I thought, how could I miss that? You thought you should have been able to recognize it when he was a kid? Well, I thought I was an observer. I thought I was, you know, a professional observer. I think I thought I was smarter than I was. I, but Jeremy would tell me later, Mom, there was nothing to miss because I didn't even know myself until I was 16. He calls himself a late bloomer on, on the scale of, uh, of being gay. He really wasn't a young child when he had these feelings. So he didn't know he was 16, and he hit it. He hit it with great intention. Uh, he overachieved at school. He went to Garfield. He was in too many activities. His father and I were concerned about that. He's over uh, stretching himself. But he was trying to avoid it. And as he would tell me, and it's recounted in the book, he didn't want to think about it. He did not want... The movie Philadelphia had just come out when he realizes he's gay. So when you're a 16-year-old, for him, being gay meant dying. Because of AIDS. Because of AIDS. So he sees this in the film. It shakes him to his core. Now he's terrified. And so he doesn't want to think about it. So he overachieves, overreaches, and decides, I'm just going to hide it from not only from my parents, but from myself. But then when he comes back at Christmas, he tells all of us. Uh, and it took me, his father was Im- immediately accepting. My parents, I recount this in the book, they're in their 80s. He tells them, Grandma, Grandpa, I'm gay. And my father, without missing a beat, says, well, that's fine, son, but did you make the dean's list? <laughs> I <laughs> thought know, it was a great response. It, it, it was a, and, then I, and I knew without question where I had come from. Yeah. Uh, really, truly understanding non-judgmental people. But for me, it was a longer a journey to be, be okay with it, uh, just because I'm still editing the film in my head. Once I did, uh, I, I was completely at ease, even though I had gay friends and everyone says, oh, some of my best friends are gay. It's different when it's your son. It's a different when yeah. it's your kid. And then you worry about AIDS and then you worry about uh, acceptance from other people and you worry about them Anyway, but now here's another layer of things to worry about. Yeah. Well, he's, is he married now? No. He was uh, one of the first people to get married in California uh-huh. under the new, when it was legal there. And then he became one of the first to get divorced. Well, uh, he's still friends with, he's had an incredibly wonderful man in his life. Uh, he's single right now, uh, but still re- maintains incredibly close relationships with all of the great, great men in his life. So he's, uh, he's a very busy guy and uh, working with uh, uh, Glad. He's their media director. Mm-hmm. So his life uh, has a lot of meaning to him, and I'm really proud of, of the work that he's, well, that he's doing. But uh, back then, in 1998, 
it was a difficult journey. So when you're out there on the ranch uh, taking care of the horses, do you uh, ever wish you, you know, you, you still had the walkie-talkie and, and uh, somebody at the assignment desk was saying, uh, jump into a car, you know, we have a, we have a body discovered downtown. No. No. Uh, first of all, they would ask me to shoot it with my cell phone. Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> they would ask me to edit the story myself. There are none of the necessary elements the way I would want to do a story that still exists today. Because I would want a story to go more than a 30 seconds or a minute and a half. So what I, and it was true in 1997 when I left the business, um, they didn't want me and I didn't want them anymore. They didn't want investigative, deep, deeply researched stories. I have to say, due respect to King's investigative unit, there is still quality work being done. Not as much, not as often, not by as many, but uh, by some really great reporters who are still trying to not shoot with a cell phone. Yeah. I don't know how, um, I mean, we all miss uh, what we consider to be the golden years, I suppose, Uh, but things have always changed throughout history. And if you want to find investigative journalism, even locally, you will find it. There are people who are doing it, not in a formalized way the way we used to do it in uh, in big newsrooms, but it's out there. What's missing, though, I think, is the involuntary exposure to opinions and stories you may not otherwise have read had they not been in a general interest newspaper or te- television station or radio station. And and people, it's it's way too easy to silo yourself in an echo chamber of people who simply tell you what you already believe. That's right. The, the role of you and me and uh, serious reporters, and they're still here, is to find that which you do not know about, to, un, to, to report the good and the bad that's going on in your community. But, some, but I will say, I personally censored the really bad stuff. I would not cover stories about um, uh, racists or, you know, give publicity to white supremacists whenever I could avoid it. And, of course, all that gatekeeping stuff. And, and you know, you could also... Uh, police, uh, what passed for taste, the kind of language used on the air. Mm. Um, and all those filters are gone now. That's an interesting comment from you, Dave. I I um, have to disagree about covering the white supremacists or covering that which we do not agree with personally. M- my job, your job, our job, is how do we report that? We cannot not pursue those stories. I, one of the things I used to do, they used to send me out to cover the pro-life people mm-hmm. who welcomed me there, even though they knew I didn't agree with them politically. I tried to be fair and to find out why, what's going on in your thinking, and to present with them with questions that aren't necessarily ones they're used to being asked. Sure. So so I would never avoid I used to go cover Richard Butler, uh the, the Nazi groups in eastern Washington and Idaho. I I used to seek out those stories because I wanted to know and report their truth the, the truth as I saw it in what they were doing. If I don't inform people and let them make up their own minds, I have no right to call myself a reporter. 
I have to cover every aspect yeah. of what's going on. When I was doing a talk show, if I had somebody calling up saying, going into a, a racist rant or something, I have no idea whether he represents a genuine movement or he's one guy just trying to stir things oh. up. And so in a case like that, I'd cut him off. Well, I, no. Now, to, to your point, yes, a singular person uh, ranting and raving, a racist uh, holding up a placard or uh, attacking somebody in a civic city situation. No, I would not give them airtime either, whether on television, radio, or on a podcast or any, anyway, anywhere. That's different. Uh, but when I see groups of people that aren't just one voice, but something rising up, it has to be, it has to be covered. I see, when I see swastikas now on synagogues in the Northwest or at uh, mosques, I want to know about that. I want to know the genesis of that. Mm-hmm. I have to understand where that's coming from. Is it just teenage angst, stupidity, and thoughtlessness? Or is it coming from some other kind of cancer uh, in this culture that I need to investigate? Yeah. So, yes, I agree with you. Singular rant radio show, if I was lucky enough to have your job. And by the way, I always tried to be in radio. I failed at my attempts at it's that. It's a very difficult business, Julie. Well, okay then. <laughs> you, have to, you have to express yourself without being seen. Oh, well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> um, but no, it's my, it's our job to do it. But, you know, they don't want what I did. And uh, that said, I want to give a shout out to Susanna Frame at King and Chris Ingalls and the investigative teams at Cairo 2 and also at, at Como. I'm is a little more problematical right now uh, because it's owned by Sinclair, which seems people are saying uh, is infused with a uh, political agenda underlying it. This concerns me. Well, a lot of media do. <laughs> I mean, when you're appealing to a market, and we, you've, we've seen this with conservative uh, talk shows, I know people who were essentially told, you know, um, you must genuinely hold this certain point of view or else you're not going to have a show. Well, so. uh, could you work in that circumstance? <laughs> no, Does that I happen to you? Does that no, happen I, was, to you? I was always very clear in my, in my conversations with the boss. You know, I, I'm glad you like what I do, but it's because of what I do. If you decide to change that, then you know, we will amicably part ways. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I, I, I hope your voice yeah. is around for But now I know if time. it happens where to go, I'm going to start raising horses. Well, Although I, I don't, just, as a man, they're not going to talk to me is what you're saying. <laughs> No, well, you might. We might be able to uh, uh, set up communication between you. I still have my horse. I've been with her 18 years. She still gives me a kind of solace and uh, calm that uh, is the best kind of therapy. I won't say it's cheap. It's it's an expensive hobby. But uh, I'm no longer managing the ranch. Um, I have other things now. I'm sort of starting my third act with this book. Um, and so I look forward to some opportunities that the, the book may give me. Um, when I started writing it, I was writing it to get these stories out of my head, which have been circling and clogging up my brain for many, many, many I've heard years. Say that. It's has, true. It's true. I just had to get work? it out. Yes. But the other thing that happened as I was finishing it, I began to see that the journeys that I had been on, which were crazy. You know, you've read the book. It's pretty out there. 
um, that I had lived a life where I had to be brave sometimes and fight back sometimes and stand up sometimes and uh, sort of navigate certain circumstances I didn't ask for. And I thought maybe young journalists, and in particular women, might be guided by what had happened to me. And so well, there is a lot there that people considering a journalism career can certainly learn from. So I think I was hoping it wasn't just to get it out of my head. Yeah. It was also to maybe serve some other purpose that might help somebody. Uh, we women in the business in the early 70s, we didn't have any mentors, Dave. There was no one uh, to really show us the way, but we stumbled and bumbled and, and got through it, Yeah. despite the Chuck Berries of the world. <laughs> I still sense a little bit of regret. Um, I think that's... F- <laughs> no, okay. no. No, re- no regret about Chuck Berry. Oh, okay. Um, but I, I was flattered. That's... All right. Fair enough. I can... I can say I've never had such an offer, so there you go. That's good. Yeah, I know. It is. The book is called Fearless, Diary of a Badass Reporter by uh, Julie Blacklow. Julie, thank you. Thank you. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say... Not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.